0: Hello, I'm Edwina Johnson, director of Byron Writers Festival. You're listening to a podcast with Lem Sisse in conversation with Adam Shoemaker, recorded live at the 2018 Byron Writers Festival. For more information about the festival, please visit byronwritersfestival.com. That's great. So,
1: colleagues, welcome to all of you as well. This is welcome to winter. Can you believe it? We had a session on the Anthropocene and climate change, a serious side, but gosh, it's amazingly beautiful today. But what's even more beautiful, we're talking about poetry and its importance in changing the course of lives and the future and countries. Lots of canvas to speak about. And Lem, as you know, not only is a poet... and You poet, don't know. Yeah, <laughs> they don't you're going to find out. You're going to find out. As you'll find out, yes, that's true. As you'll find out, Lem is not only a poet, but many, many other things. And just in that current context, we did have a bit of a chat about it. He's also the Chancellor of Manchester University, which is a really interesting thing, you know, and very important. So congratulations on that. The campaign itself was phenomenal. Have a look online. You'll see the whole story of it. But, Len, what is a Chancellor exactly?
0: But don't look online while you're here. Yeah. (laughs) Um, uh, I got a call from the Students' Union from Manchester who were slightly concerned about... Uh, the nominees for chancellorship and the fact that one of them, a leading politician in England, had put himself forward to the public before he'd actually nominated himself for the vote. Mm -hmm. Uh, So the the Guardian newspaper, at the beginning of the campaign for who would be Chancellor of a Russell Group university, that is the University of Manchester, the Guardian headline that ran at the beginning of the voting system was, was, was like, will Peter Mandelson run for nomination? Okay, And it was a PR company that had actually that he'd employed that actually got that article into the newspaper at the start before he put himself in and he said these words to the person who interviewed him he said when they said are you going to run for chancellor of the university of manchester he said you are somewhat ahead of the truth <laughs> genius <laughs> So, so this is all online. You can find yeah. it. It's all on record. Um, so the students' union asked me to to run, and so the three people who were running for the campaign for chancellor of the University of Manchester were uh, Lord Peter Mandel- Mandelson and Lord uh, Mark uh, Mark. Uh, Elder, yeah. uh, Sir Mark Elder, who's a brilliant uh, conductor for the Halle Orchestra, a man I mm-hmm. utterly respect. So the Students' Union called me, they asked me would I nominate uh, for it, put myself forward for it, which is what you have to do. I said, I don't know about that. <laughs> and, uh, and I uh, said goodbye, because uh, otherwise it would have been quite ignorant to just put the phone down. <laughs> and uh, I, I, then thought, I then thought about what I'd done over the past year um, I was front page of the uh, Manchester College's uh, uh, magazine that said "braver, smarter, stronger." I gave the keynote address to a thousand lectures it was at the university at um, the Manchester Town Hall. Only six months earlier, I was on national radio saying that Manchester was the greatest place on earth, um, etc. And if I look back at my record, I'm on the national curriculum. I've taught teachers in Cameroon, I've, I've read poetry all over the world and it's all on record and it's, all in, the, it's in the papers and it's in the whatever it's, it's Google me, a yes and the, that, that's the truth of it so, so once I'd received that, I thought why not me why shouldn't it be me why would I think that I shouldn't be for, be for this position and what is a Chancellor and what what <laughs> And, and and what does a chancellor do? And what does a chancellor look like? <laughs> <laughs> okay. So when I w- w- when I looked at my own record, uh, I I said yeah I'll run and I called him back and said yeah I will run for this and I had no um I had no, I had no I had no all I can do is the best I can I can do all I can be is the best that I can be, so judge me on my on my record. Uh, and, and the students' union said, thank you. And so they, so I put myself, so there's me, Lord Peter S- Mandelson, Sir Mark Elder. <laughs> and 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 already Peter Mandelson is all over the press like a crazy guy. Right. <laughs> and um and um and and and, and 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 I had three weeks. And on the second week, the students' union said to me, yeah, no, we don't have a vote. Okay, (laughs) I wondered why they were not getting back to me. (laughs) Okay, The voters were the General Assembly, of whom I am now the chair. They're Mm -hmm. the people who uh, meet every month to discuss the two billion turnover of the university. (laughs) They are the alumni, the people who've been to the university and travelled all over the world. They are the lecturers. Those are the voters. Three weeks later, I received a call from the registrar. And he went through the votes numbers. <laughs> Up until that point, I thought a registrar was something to do with medicine or a medical thing. <laughs> and, he, he, uh, and he counted the votes and I won. Mm. And, um, <laughs> and it was national press the next day, etc., etc., and uh, Andrew Neil uh, on The Daily Show, which is a political show in, uh, the, not The Daily Show, The Daily Politics, he said to uh, one of the other presenters, he said, So, Peter Mandelson, beaten by a poet? <laughs> from Wigan? <laughs> All of those things I'm proud of. Yeah. That is, why not? That is being a poet from Wigan. If an alien is going to come down to earth to understand the human experience, political and personal, they will find out more through the poets and the poetry than through the politicians. Hear, here. Period. <laughs> Period.
1: Well, look, it's a pretty amazing thing. And then when you took it further and actually had to, as it were, get your honorary doctorate, I thought that the Chancellor's
0: awarded the honorary doctorates? Did you not have to sort of split yourself somehow? So we made a kind of history, and I'm I'm, I'm proud of this, that a year earlier, the vice-chancellor of the university, Dame Nancy Rothwell, an incredible scientist Mm. who works in cancer in particular, and still, um, she had called me and said that the university wanted to offer me an honorary doctorate for services to literature. So this is before she knew, Mm -hmm. a year before she knew that I would be running for chancellor this is the vice chancellor so if you wanted a reason for me to 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 to, to go for vice chancellor the university that i was going for chancellor was already offering me an honorary doctorate for the <laughs> services that I've given to literature that sorry that was another thing that i forgot to say this all sounds like i'm bragging let me just tell you let me tell you if you know where i'm from like like this isn't this isn't bragging. No. You know, do it, you're a success in my eyes if you can look in the mirror of a morning and know that you're okay. That has been my criteria since I was since I was became an adult at 18 to now, mm-hmm. and it still is. I take one day at a time, mm-hmm. uh, and if you understand my story, you'll know why I have to I have to live in that reality, in the reality of the present. What was the question? Oh, sorry. Oh, I know, I know um, now. How did you do no no, do I do know, thing. I do know. So the point is, is that because I became chancellor, it just turned out that I had to give myself an honorary doctorate. <laughs> I swear, right? This is history-making stuff, right? Um, so, it's not really history-making stuff, but... but um, but constitutionally, it was, a, it was a difficulty for the university. So a brilliant writer also who was brought up in care in that she was adopted and mm. has a very similar story to me. Uh, Jeanette Winterson uh, was mm. charged with, with giving the, the speech that they give yeah. before they give you the honorary doctorate and then giving me an honorary... And then she gave it to me. That is one... You know, I have a theory about... Can I speak about this? Yeah. Just about... Yeah. I mean, about um, people who are brought up in children's homes or foster care or uh, adoption, about the fact that there is a prejudice against them quite often because of the nature of um, family, and that is to say that um, that the, the heart of family is... Dysfunction is at the heart of all functioning families... Okay, this is my belief. Dysfunction is at the heart of all functioning families. And, but, but, but outside of that dysfunction is the PR company of family... Uh, and the PR company is the one that goes around saying, don't talk bad about my family, we're all right. <laughs> no, you're not. <laughs> no, it's not. And it's okay that it's not. <laughs> right? The PR company is what, say, is, is, what, is what tries to prove to everybody else that the familial structure that you're in is actually perfect and that there are no problems in our house and that you will show that and you'll replicate that perfection somewhere else or whatever. <laughs> anyway... This is why, at school, when people say, "Don't talk bad about my mother," don't you know? When people say anything bad about your mother, it doesn't matter that your mother's probably beating you every night. I'm not saying she is. I'm just saying that dysfunction is at the heart of all functioning families, which is why Christmas dinner is so damn difficult. Family is a set of people <coughs> taking photographs of the same event and then arguing in the editing suite as to which photographs will be used in the final film. <laughs> Family is a set of disputed memories between one group of people over a lifetime. <laughs> so, outside of that is the PR company, and that's what the advertisers sell things to you uh, wise. The, the perfect mm-hmm. house, the perfect car, the perfect blah, the blah, 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 me blah, me blah. blah. the point is is that the child in care in the children's home the child who is fostered or adopted who should never speak about it in their adult life they are living walking proof of the dysfunction at the heart of all functioning families and that's why there is a living breathing prejudice against them if you're naughty i'll send you to the children's home naughty kids don't go to children's homes Kids who need care go into children's homes. So that prejudice remains unchallenged and believed in society. And I believe... That the writers of our society who wrote about Harry Potter, who wrote about Jane Eyre, who wrote about Heathcliff, the orphan, who wrote about the real life, Moses, who was adopted, who wrote about Superman, who was adopted, Spider-Man, Cinderella, fostered by her sisters. The writers saw that a child who is without family will use extraordinary skills to deal with the extraordinary circumstance of being without family, who will, have to, not having the buffer of family to show that their hatred or their anger or their love will have to reach out further. And that's what Harry Potter did. He ran away. He had inappropriate conversations with adults on a (laughs) one-to-one basis as a child. He saw visions. He saw his dead parents. He cried. He ran away. He yearned to be loved. He asked more from people than they were used to asking because he didn't have the familial structure where you normally do that in such a dysfunctional way, but you do. The point is, is that Jeanette Winterson is one of them. She was adopted. Mm -hmm. She was told that she was worthless. She was told that that, that God had all of that rubbish. And she saw through it, handled it, wrote about it, and lived. And I'm one of those as well. So for her to give me the honorary doctorate Mm -hmm. was an incredibly special thing.
1: Thank you, Jeanette.
0: I am done I am done with the idea that children who are brought up in care or in children's homes deserve sympathy from wider society which just simply separates people mm. they deserve respect for what and who they are and they deserve respect in in our delivering of our services towards them and don't tell me, and also don't tell me that a child in care shouldn't be naughty or shouldn't be bad. Who says to their own child, who judges them to be loved less if they're bad? The idea of a child being good or bad is something which fits an institution that needs to actually fit them into a system which, which, which isn't designed for them.
1: So, so true. Hey...
0: Now, Lem, you may not know this. And I believe! Yeah. <laughs> I swear, somebody has woken up. <laughs> Somebody's like, oh, strap yourself in, love. <laughs> the term in conversation
1: will never be the same. Uh, look, let me tell you something about this place that you may know, but actually, one of the care levers of a history is on the $50 note. David, you and know I upon it. And he's one of the greatest achievers of the 1920s, one of the indigenous people who was a poet. He was a scientist. He was someone who's an inventor. And he was also someone who was the, actually the most renowned person of his generation in the 20s. And the first line of his book is actually on the money. How many people bother to read the money and see the poetry in it? I'm always reading the money. <laughs> Have, a look. Have a look and read it. Read That's it. my fee. Read it and believe. <laughs> and as you know, there are, po- there are poets on all sorts of bank bills in this country. I mean, actually, if you look at the Tyndall Note, it's the same thing. So Banjo-Patterson, check it, check it out, is there as well. But how many people spend the time to think? I mean, at the time, for example, in the 1920s, that same era, Henry Lawson died, there was a state funeral in Sydney, and the Prime Minister delivered the oration. Come on, what have we lost? Where is poetry going in this country? Now you know why
0: you're here. Yeah. I think um, I mean you have Les Murray here, and you have yeah. you have quite incredible uh, uh, writers here, and Peter Carey, and uh, and I think Peter Carey writes poetry as well. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And A lot poetry. of novelists actually began as poets first and foremost. It's very easy to sort of infantilize poetry because we did it when we were children sometimes. But um, actually, uh, you find poetry at the heart of uh, the heart of many novelists.
1: Can we talk about that role of poetry? Because you talk about it a lot yourself, saying, you know, how it's gone through generational upsurges and downturns. (laughs) That's okay. That happens every time I speak. And uh, especially at schools, you know, this sort of the temptation. But look, but no, quite sincerely, if you look at it about this way, what is this realm of the kind of rhythm of poetry and why is it up there at the moment? Is there, you talked about it in the UK, what's going on?
0: Well, I don't know. Bloody hell. Yeah. We are, uh, in, um, uh, in England, uh, yeah, there's uh, Slam Poetry, I think, has been responsible. Uh, slam Poetry, having come over from America in the 1980s, um, uh, has kind of uh, caused a, a kind of surge in the poetry world, which I think is, is the, the poetry world needs a kick in every now and again. It gets very involved in itself. Um, and that's fine, actually. That it does. Uh, poets tend to be kind people. Um, so yeah, uh, yeah, it's more popular now than it's ever been in my adult life. There are more words passing between more people now than since the beginning of time. Mm. Okay, the greatest publisher on earth is the uh, the internet, mm. and so it only uh, it only communicates through words and images. And I was just saying to the um, Poet uh, Laureate of New Zealand yesterday, Clang. Can you hear that? That was names dropping. Yeah. (laughs) It's a bad joke. But anyway, I was speaking to her yesterday, and um, and, uh, and I think I've convinced her to get a Twitter account. (laughs) And I I think that it's because I said to her that... um, She might resent me saying this now, but... um, I said to her that you don't have to be linear. A friend of mine, she 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 takes photographs of poet, of poems, poem, parts of poems, and she say, she says, you know, this is whichever poet, and this is a beautiful piece of work, and that's all she does every every day. She sends that out once. Yeah, she has thousands of followers. Um, I, I do a morning tweet every day to try to describe the morning in a way that's never been described before since the beginning of time. Yeah, and it's not difficult to do that. You just—if you said sun, elephant, eggnog, you know—is <laughs> that what you said that's, today? That's never been said <laughs> since the be- <laughs> beginning of time. So uh, actually, that's not bad. Actually, a, yeah. <clears throat> that'll but be like tomorrow that. in a sort of beat poet way, you know, sort of concrete poet's way. But um, um. No, I no, One one of mine the, my favourite one is. Um, How do you do it? Said night. How do you wake and shine? I keep it simple. Said light. One day at a time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we're going to be we're going to so, be doing some words in a minute. So I try and make I make one up every every day. Yeah. and um and sometimes they're crap. <laughs> and that, that's the the magic actually of the writer is that they commit. They commit, man. That's what most people fear, mm. you know. That most people fear committing to their true story on stage. I don't mean confessional. Yeah. I just mean to seeing their true selves. That's why people don't write the novels that they say they're going to write all their life. Because they know quite often that the novel that they want to write is not the novel that needs writing. Mm. The story mm. they want to tell of themselves or of their grandfather is not the story. There's a better story in there. And that's scary. And that's why writers, I I love them. I think they're the strongest, most incredible people. People always think of them as being some sort of, I don't know, uh, the cliche is that the poet is alone in an attic, you know, sort of. And there is some of that. I can understand the logic of that, actually. but, but, um, But they're much more powerful and strong than that. I think novelists especially. And that social dimension, right, that's incredibly important. Just to
1: give another example in this country... An indigenous poet uh, who originally was called Kath Walker, then Ujiru, was the most popular poet of her generation in her time. Sold out her books within weeks yeah. of publishing, yeah. you know. But it was poetry which was sort of balladic and able to be repeated, and able to be reinvoked, you know, yeah, this yeah. kind of thing. Just caught that moment.
0: Her and Shakespeare. Yep, caught the moment. Yeah. So her this is what's so powerful. Her and Samuel Coleridge Taylor and the Rhyme of an Ancient Mariner, and her and Christina Rossetti and. Yeah,
1: lots, lots of them, and again, someone else who's been removed. You know, like amazing correspondences of talent. So tell me, do you have a favourite word in the English language? Eggnog. Excellent. <laughs> Mixed, you know, any that you dislike. Uh,
0: no, I dislike, actually I dislike the words that institutionalise childcare. So, um, challenging child, I dislike that. Yeah. Um, yeah. When I was in care, it was, it was mal- maladjusted, Ah. Um, uh, and an attachment disorder. I dislike those words that are so easy to attach to.
1: The label words,
0: in a way. Um, Mm. Words which actually, I dislike the word care Mm. for a system because because it's not care. Mm. Mm. Um, I dislike words being used to institutionalize people. Yeah, yeah.
1: Makes a lot of sense. And maybe there's a better term than care leavers, too. We have to come up with it.
0: Well, it's funny, isn't it? Because we use yeah. the term care. I don't know. Do you use that here for children's homes and yeah. the care system? And then we say to the, the child in care when they get to adulthood, we say you're leaving care. Mm. Just think about that. Mm. What parent would ever say to their child, it's now time for you to leave care? <laughs> Very so odd. the use of the word is almost uh, animal farmish, mm-hmm. Orwellian um, I'm afraid that some of you will use those words in your own work, as social workers, if there are any of you out there. I'm not here to bully you for using them. We've got what the words that we've got, and we have the system that we've got. And, you know, it's not dissimilar here to it is in England. Um, yeah, yeah, we, we have what we have. But, you know, our imaginations are allowed to push the boundaries. There is no limit mm-hmm. to the questions that we can ask of the language that we are forced, we think, to use.
1: And that's where it's going. Well, let's, would you mind? No. We heard I, some of your language. I would
0: mind, actually.
1: Okay, but perhaps we can rephrase no, it. No, I'd
0: really mind. Okay,
1: let's imagine it. Let's imagine a different way of asking the I'm question. Only joking. Would you like to read some of your poetry?
0: Yeah, I can read a poem. Fantastic.
1: Yeah. I know that it was just welling up.
0: It's funny uh, speaking and reading. Uh, I'd love to do a reading when I, uh, you know, uh, another time. I will. Um, okay, so this is my. Uh, it's this poem will last about half an hour, but it, it's... Uh, <laughs> aside d- from don't that, don't it's worry. perfect. Um, it's called. Um, you know, when I first started reading poetry at twenty nineteen, <laughs> um, I've read poetry all my adult life. I've been. A... Oh, let me just read a poem. Yeah, David it I'm first. talking, man. But I am going to read a poem about a guy who falls off a cliff, and um, he just falls off a cliff, and uh, I need to find the thing first. Um They always said I was over the edge, and now I am, I really am, I'm over the edge. But as I dropped in a gasp of air, I grasped a branch that I hoped had its roots in the rock or rock-solid roots. But there's a breeze blowing, a stunning storm coming, thickening ink spills and swills on a bleating paper sky. A crowd of rain on the horizon staggers nearer, I sway so, I know so, I slip a little more. I sway so, I know so, I grip a little more. These tender fingers in a clenched fist. I must have slit my back when I fell. It hurts like a howl, it stings like a scowl. It weeps and stings again, and the skin splits and spits from my spine sides. And a pain develops muscles that create mouths, that simulate sounds of whole cities screaming. There's a storm coming, a coming storm. Dust spits from the cliff top into my river eyes, forcing tears over the banks to flood me. I will not drown in them. I will not drown. I am hanging on. I am hanging on. I am hanging on. In the zip of a thick ribbon of wind, a god or a devil appears floating in front of me, and he tells me in a hunch of a New York accent, let go. <laughs> Let go. Death is the beginning of the end of the beginning of the end of the beginning of the end of the beginning of the end. And he continues for 41 days and 41 nights of the end of the beginning of the end. And in a crack of lightning, the devil, the God vanished. There's nothing more to concentrate on but a storm, the sky, my breaching back and the cliff and the edge and the uprooting branch and my knuckles. So sore, cracked and numb. They favor a knot of bleeding wood. If I look down... And I do look down. I can see that blood has poured from my back, seeped along the smoothness of my backside, slid under me, coiled its way seductively around my thighs, my knees, my ebonized legs. It pours in abundance, the blood from my feet and skydives. And I watch those red tears fall forever and transform into explicit flowers as they reach the floor. I will not become one. I am hanging on, I am hanging on, I am hanging on, whispers from above me, from above me whispers gather, the cliff ledge lined with edgy people of all colours, some humming, amazing grace, Others staring, some I saw pointing down at my back and wincing. A bearded man with his hand on a Bible or a red book or a revolutionary book or a dark green book shouted down to me in sermonic tones deeper than the sea, let go, in the name of, let go. A nervous follower peeps over the edge and offers the advice that there's someone down there. Hey, they'll catch you. And before I get chance to answer them, they erupt into a sky shattering. Someone's crying lord, let go. Someone's crying lord. Let go. The harmony of those collected voices woke the spirit of the sky and they threw crosses at me. It's raining crosses. I looked down past my feet, a devil or a god, a man the size of a pea is mouthing the words up to me, let go. Nighttime was approaching. Uh, breathless, I whispered, I never, I will not fall, never have, never will not fall, never have, never will not fall, never have, never will not fall. And as quick as they came is as quick as they were gone, but I am hanging on. I am hanging on. I am hanging on, and a darkness cloaked the horror of night time, of gangrenous spirits that fared upon open wounds. As lightning struck, I saw glimpses of their faces, demons whose countenance had slipped, whose fingers had stretched, whose nails had curled, whose breath stank so viciously that I spewed into the sea my mantra. I I am hanging on, I am hanging on, I am hanging on, I am hanging on. Throughout Darkness and fear until sunrise and the stillness of morning breaking I was a silhouette me a silhouette hanging from a branch against a chalky cliff only the sound of my trickling blood my breaking back and the moaning sky for comfort my shadow stretched across the cliff like a script title on handmade paper. The sulking storm retreated into the horizon to collect. Even the sea tried to throw off its reflection. And I listened more to the tearing of my back flesh as I hanged. The flapping wet skin of my bloodied back as it hanged. And tears painted salt veins along my ebonized skin. And as that stark sunlight skidded across a bloodied sky. I swear I sensed the presence of two symmetrical shadows descending. They stretched, seemingly, even pushed back the clouds, seemingly. I felt them push warm air into my face, seemingly, and I saw them in the corner of each eye, seemingly, magnificent wings, seemingly, and I felt new muscles in my back and my chest expand with air, a new spirit and... A new air and further and further and there, with not a soul around me, I unpeeled my tender fingers from that dew-drenched branch. I let the sun pour into my eyes and finally, after years, I let go. Why? Because I was growing wings all the time and I can fly. Thank you.
1: Wow. 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 Thank you.
0: Oh, <laughs>
1: <laughs> Would you like to stand? Mm-hmm.
0: Now, I do know that there are some people in the middle of that poem that, was, that just said, "Wait, well, it's a bit long. <laughs> and, and I just want to say to you, you know, sometimes you have to stick with something to find it, you know. It's so easy to turn off. Yeah. It really is. It's like listening to jazz. It's so easy to go, it's not for me, you know. Mm. But actually, just, just, you just one step away from the full magnitude of the experience.
1: And look, isn't that the moment of the festival?
0: I mean, that was just
1: absolutely yeah. fabulous. Look, like, yeah. Yeah. really. Really. But who is comparing? What we're saying is the, la- the absolute magic of live theater, live poetry, live people, live ideas. Here it is. Thank you. Thank Pleasure you again. Yeah. So, without that, we talked about this before. Which poem would you read? Which ones? Which which thoughts? Which areas would you go into? And, and Lim said, "Well, it is a bit long, but no, it's not about length. It's about depth and breadth and power." Are we and talking about really, poetry here? Yeah, not too. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Shall we talk about poetry? So let's talk about drama, <laughs> because let's face it, from the Olympics to the stage, you've been doing different venues of things too in the last five to ten years, amazing experiences. So tell me what really resonated, you talked a lot about you know, transforming your work into other performance venues and other performance types. Tell me a bit about that.
0: Well, it's just, uh, you know, poetry is everything from uh, the work of Nick Cave to um, the songs of Bob Marley to Shakespeare to Leonard Cohen. And, um, mm-hmm. you know, so if you're a poet, I don't think you're in a, a minority sport. You know, you can mm. find my poems on the sides of buildings in the Royal Festival Hall on the album of Field l- an album called Leftism. And mm. that was a real, you know, so... Um, and then you can find it on the national curriculum, you know. So, I, I don't, I, I, you know, if you look at Shakespeare as well, his work has been adapted into song, into theatre, into opera. So I don't think of poetry as a minority sport. No, it's on not. adverts on television. It's what people read at weddings and at funerals. Whenever people need a bridge between the spiritual and the physical, between the practical and the human, uh, you know, poetry always will. Condense the experience and um, and speak to the heart. And uh, that's a good thing, and especially in the present condition.
1: And you can see poems in on walls, in graffiti, everywhere. In fact, you've talked about walls yeah, and Yeah, there's floors. some
0: really shit poetry out yeah. there. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> that's true. You know, I
0: don't want to... I don't want to... Um, I, don't want to uh, I mean... You, you can read mine and think it's some of it's shit. I, I'm, not, I'm not talking about other people. I, yeah. I, I don't want to do that. I, I just, I just the idea that you don't like a particular kind of poetry doesn't mean to say that it's not poetry. You know, <laughs> it's like, it's like. Uh, it's like um, see it for how big it is enjoy it for how massive it is it's in all of the religions you know if you can only define that the kind of poetry that you like is the only kind of poetry then you're selling poetry down the down the river and uh -hmm. and it's a shame to do that and people do that in any area the performance poets do it to the to the so-called page poets and the so-called page poets do it to the performance poets. it's like you know, just get off each other, man, and get on. Do do what you do, you know. Write, perform, read, um, share, be kind.
1: Yeah, and there's so much of that, so much talent to be had, so much to be encouraged.
0: Yeah, and there is, and I, I enjoy encouraging talent. I like young poets, but I, I will break their legs uh, at some point just so that they can't walk. Um, <laughs> I'm very competitive yeah, in that right. way. So is this... This is the link with the Olympics. This is all a scam. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so how were you chosen? It's funny. The more you give away, the more you get. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. that is actually true, you know. Yeah, yeah. It's quite incredible. It's quite beautiful to to practice that.
1: So you talked about how you were chosen as chancellor. How did it happen in terms of the London Olympics? How did that had that occur?
0: Well, that was the, I mean, it, it, that was the Olympic, uh, what would they call The OAC or something? The Olympic... Uh, Whatever they were, yeah, they had a name. They, they, they changed when the actual Olympics happened. They became something else because they, you know it was a different part of the the growth of the project. So they took me onto the site and they wanted they commissioned me uh, to write a poem about the Olympics and they wanted me to find the poem. So yeah. they took me when the area where the Olympics is being uh, built. They took me around and uh, gave me lots of research and I found that there was a matchmaking factory in East London that was run by women, mm-hmm. uh, that was, yeah, that w- it was run by a man, but it was worked by women uh, making matches, and they were the first documented strike striking action of the trade union movement. So mm-hmm. they were the first strikers, and that's actually, that's actually written into the trade union, uh, in the trade union hall in, in London. Yeah. So I found them, and then I found an article by a woman called Annie Besant, who later became a suffragette, but this was before the suffragettes, and it was entitled. The article was written in 1886, and it was entitled "White Slavery." White slavery was the title of the article. And at the end of the article, it's she said, "If only there was a poet to speak for these women." Women. And when I found that bit of research, I knew the poem that I was going to write. Yeah. And it was all about the word "strike." Yep. As in to strike the match. As mm. in to strike the Olympic. Uh, torch, as mm-hmm. in to go on strike, mm-hmm. and I had these women as spark catchers. Mm-hmm. It's called, the poems called spark catchers, spark catchers yeah. and I had them at night uh, practicing spark catching because if there was one spark in that factory, the whole thing would blow. So they 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 used to practice under a full moon, uh, catching sparks in a circle of women. I'm I'm very proud of of the poem. Uh, it's not as good as it could be, uh, just because of the deadline, uh, etc. But um, yeah, and that was the poem. The beauty of it is, is that the whole Olympic site is sponsored by Visa, mm-hmm. and I have a poem about a group of women going on strike. <laughs> and I, I insisted that my name was with my, I, the only place I want my name is with my poetry. Mm. It, it's not worth anything. Mm. It, it's everything to me. Yeah. So, and they said no, no artist on the Olympic site can have their name next to the artwork because everything's sponsored by Visa. Yeah. So. But I got my name next to my poem.
1: Oh, wow!
0: And then, and then after that, all of the other poets did. So I was the first poet to be commissioned to write uh, for the Olympics because it was so successful. Lots of other uh, poets were then commissioned: Caroline Duffy, the poet Mm laureate; Caroline Bird; uh, Joe Shapcott, um, and I think one other. Anyway, that's the story. But
1: reclaiming your name—that's a big theme in your life too. I mean, all the way through, getting it back. Honouring it and celebrating the name.
0: Yeah, for the first sort of 18 years of my life, I thought my name was Norman. (laughs) (laughs) It's tattooed onto my hand. There's the proof. Um, The social... When I was uh, a child, when I was a... When my mum came to England to study uh, from Ethiopia, a place that had never been colonised... uh, that was in its heyday of Haile selassie 's kind of promotion of uh, the younger generation as uh, get educated a- around the world and bring back their education to Ethiopia, she found herself to be pregnant, so she asked a social worker in England could she have me fostered for a short period of time? The social worker had no intention of giving me back to her none she 'd gone into the 1960s film mm. Philomena mm. you know philomena yeah. I know Steve yeah. I know Steve Coogan yeah, I know him. And, uh, and I know Philomena. And, um, and she arrived, remember, right in the middle of that. She was pregnant in Berkshire. They sent her to the cold, dark north of England to have a baby and a mother and babies home. Women get pregnant. Mm. That's the deal. That's, that's how we're all here. That's, it's not a shock. So, she, so she's sent to the north of England, she's in a mother and baby home, and the primary purpose of this mother and baby home is to make those women feel, A, guilty for being pregnant and not having a, having a father, and B, to get rid of their child and have them adopted. Most of those women were on the bridge between childhood and adulthood, never having heard the word adoption before had been actually cast out of their homes by their own family. This isn't about nuns and social workers. Mm. This is about a prejudice that was right in our society. It was in the terraced houses. It was in the twitching curtains. It was in the false PR company idea of what a family should be to uphold the state and the church. We're the guilty ones. It's really easy for us to point at the churches. We're part of it. When we point at a woman and we're like, look at that woman there. She's on drugs. She's not got this. Look at her. She shouldn't have children. That is the beginning of stealing children. Children. that's the beginning of all of those institutions that's what allows those systems to be uh, to, 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 to rise up like you take in poison you get spots and what have you that's how those things came we are responsible we're so damn sanctimonious anyway um, sorry <laughs> but it's really important it's really important because if we don't recognise that we're just going to do it all over again and again, and again, and again, and it'll be 40 years' time that you realise what you've done now with the care system, etc. So it's a real review of who and what and how we are, how we look at other, particularly women, particularly women who are pregnant without a husband. How do we look at them? How do we find allegiance with each other by the way that we look at them? And what systems are then used that we think are right, that, 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 that punish those people and therefore their children so my mum came into the middle of that to the mother and baby home the adopting parents were the consumers the social workers and the nuns were the farmers the mother was the earth and the child was the crop it was the perfect industrious system as long as we let that child know that his mother hated him and didn't want him anyway in the first place and of course we all know women actually who hated and didn't want their children while they were pregnant don't we we don't we actually don't we have to and that's why prejudice comes up that's what, we have to cultivate that idea so that we can we can justify what we do to people like that in those situations so anyway my mum lying in that bed in that mother and baby home would not sign the adoption papers mm. to the social worker she said i want him fostered while i study then i'm taking him back to ethiopia yeah. um, and uh, And the social worker gave me to foster parents and said, treat this as an adoption. He's yours forever. His name is Norman. They wanted to call me Mark after Mark in the Bible. So my name was Norman Mark Greenwood because of their image of Africa because they're an v- image of whatever. Mm. My mother was an evil woman who wouldn't sign the adoption papers, and that was the narrative that was told to me. And that's mm. what I believed. And they were my mum and dad, and they were the best thing on earth. And my granddad was Duncan Munro from Loch Inver. And, and, and my grandma was, 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 was English, and he married in, sort of in, in exile in deepest Lancashire. And, um, and I was the only black kid there. And, 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 and they thought that calling me Norman would make a difference. <laughs> I mean, everybody, and the sad thing about this is that everybody, because nobody questioned it, everybody thought or convinced themselves that they were all doing the right thing. That's how you get blindsided. Just get a lot of people who agree exactly with what you're doing. And uh, everybody thought they were doing the right thing by mm-hmm. God, by the state, by the church. And at 12 years of age, my foster parents uh, deemed that the devil was inside of me um, Uh, And I just, I've said this before, but I just wish I'd have been sat at the breakfast table and gone, pass me the ketchup, you (laughs) (laughs) uh, you know. Or sort of projectile vomited or something, you know what I mean? But anyway... They thought the devil was inside of me in very real terms. Remember, I was the oldest child. They'd had three other of their own children at that point. So I was the first. What was I the first? I was 12 years of age, started smoking a cigarette. I, um, I started staying out late with friends. I uh, took biscuits from the tin. Uh, I took bits of cake when I shouldn't have done. Right? I couldn't help it. And, um, and, and they deemed this as the devil being inside of me. They put me into care and they said that they would never write to me or speak to me ever again and they never did and i lost to everybody my my aunts my uncles my cousins my granddad my grandma the lot of them Mm. and then i was held in four different children's homes until i was 18 years of age when i left Mm. care at 18 by the way i've proved all of this in documentaries in in in, on every level i've even taken the government to court for it and won last year Mm. it's another story it's another story and I took them to court for stealing my family. I took them to court for taking my name and imprisoning me at 16 to 17 years of age. Because the question about all of this is like, what was wrong with me? What, what did I do? That's the question. What did I do that cultivated this situation? And I didn't do everything, but the, anything, but the question, other than be a, t- a teenager, but the question that you were asking yourself in me telling you this story is exactly the question that I was left with when I went into care, what is wrong with me? What did I do wrong? What, why am I bad? Am I, because for everybody to leave me in such a way, I must, there's something must be wrong. Mm. I was an adolescent. I was doing adolescent things and they'd not had an adolescent before. And many of you who've had adolescents will know that it is like the devil is inside of them. <clears throat> but they actually did not make the distinction. Mm. And they, they said the cruelest thing, we didn't know who you were going to become. So, but never mind them saying that explicitly. They did that by their actions. I lost everybody. Mm. Ended up imprisoned as a child, also illegally, because there was no family who was going to complain about it. I then spent all of my adult life, though, writing poetry, knowing that I would use whatever resources that came from writing poetry, to find my family. And like in the middle of my career, you know, somebody said, will this man not do anything for publicity? <laughs> because it seemed to them that, that I was trying to sell my poetry by my backstory. They was that cynical. But what I did know is that if family is a group of people proving that each other exists over a lifetime, at 18 years of age when I left care, I knew that nobody knew me longer than a year. Mm. And that All Family Years is a group of people proving that each other exists over a lifetime. And I did not have anybody to prove that I existed. So documentary evidence is me being in a newspaper. That proves that I was alive at some particular point in time. And I knew that at 18, 19, 20, 21 years of age when I was in the Guardian newspaper. And they said, Lem Say has success written all over his forehead. And I knew that that was dangerous for me. Because I had no one, I was relative to no one. there are people who say to me, "I hey, well, listen, pal, family 's not all of that i didn 't say it was all of that don 't you think that i 'm living testament to know that family isn 't all that? I never looked for a functioning, functional family. I understand the dysfunction of families because i 've not been able to live the lie and by the way i 'm not lie is a strong word um, love is love is a beautiful thing that can happen in a family where it means that you have secrets and you don't speak about them. And sometimes it's good not to speak about the secrets. Sometimes it's good to hold yourselves in mind. Mm. And I had never, I didn't have anybody to hold me in mind. I had to find my family throughout my adult life and write poems and I'm a creative. And, uh, and I've, I've done it all. I found my family and now I've got a fully dysfunctional family just like everybody else. That's right. <laughs> Because when you find your family, I'm sorry, but when you find your family, just imagine somebody walking into your front room now and saying, your mother slept with somebody else and uh, I'm the oldest one. (laughs) You know, it's not all roses, man. Just imagine somebody did that in your house. You may throw a party first. But But we hold you
1: in mind. We hold you in mind, yeah, and think, thank you for that. Yeah. yeah we hold yeah. you in mind, because that's incredibly open. And also, well, it's never, incredibly never, creative. I, the
0: thing about being open is, is that I've never, I've never, I, I, I have never had a family to keep secrets from. So mm. the idea, people often say to me, oh, you're very brave, or you're very open. And I'm just like, well, actually, I'm not. I, I've not had the, it's, it's not, I've not had that thing where mm-hmm. you hold somebody else in mind, for example. Yeah, you know. yeah. Um, I get it. Uh, so it's quite...
1: But creativity is such a big thing. I mean, when you think about it, those, the poems, the work that you're doing and seeing it through all the way through, gee, the future is incredible to imagine. Here you are, and at this point in time, are we lucky or not to have heard this?
0: I mean, honestly. I am. I'm lucky. Yeah, we both know, feel it. And I, I think that... Um, oh, God, I think that you know some of the th- bad things that we think have, have happened to us, they're like bridges. I'm not saying... You know, I'm not doing that show me your wounds thing, but, but, but we, have the, we have the opportunity to build bridges to each other. So rather than my experience being a ravine between uh, people, mm-hmm. it's, actually, it, it, it's actually helped me t- to hone my skills as a bridge builder. Yeah. Yeah. And the biggest thing that I learned, I think, is that um, I couldn't do it alone. Mm. And, uh, and to ask for help and to get therapy and to stop drinking.
1: Wow, wow, and as you have said, we've gone an amazing full circle from function to dysfunction and back again to the top, and I'm going to bring that university image back just at the end here because as you've said, paraphrasing, universities are not the repositories of all knowledge, but they are a citadel of knowledge, and they actually are something special where these things can be debated, seen. Yeah. Learned yeah. and explored, yeah. and that's a wonderful thing. So we're so proud that you're part of a, a university family as well.
0: Yeah, we are. Yeah, my university family. I'm. Um, I'm not here as chancellor, really. I'm here as me as a poet. So I don't want to. Uh, it is what it is. But, but um, I uh, yeah, I'm proud to be chancellor of uh, Russell Group University that has. Um, that has social responsibility as its central goal. Mm. So this mm. is not like social responsibility as an add-on. Yeah. This is We assess our growth and our development and our um, ach- achievements uh, with three goals, one of which is social responsibility. I'm particularly proud of that. We're the only Russell Group University to have social responsibility as a central goal.
1: Yeah, we live it too. Colleagues... Would you join us in thanking Lynn for Thank signing, sealed, and delivered. Okay, that's good.
0: I hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. This session was recorded live as part of Byron Writers' Festival 2018. You can find other recorded talks and discussions from the festival on our website, byronwritersfestival.com.